Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, I'm Dan Rundy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Joining us today is Jack Hamilton. Jack is the Hopkins P. Brazil professor at Louisiana State University. He's at the Manship School of Mass Communication. He's also a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Jack is also currently a senior associate here at CSIS. Jack is a well-renowned journalist, educator, and public servant. He recently finished publishing his book entitled Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. It's a fascinating book. I read the whole thing. I loved it. The book explores the history of American propaganda and its use during World War I and the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Jack also highlights the role of a number of prominent actors at the time in the rise of something called the Committee on Public Information, CPI, which we're going to learn about and the lasting impact that the agency has had on modern-day government propaganda. There's a lot of discussion today in the modern world about misinformation and disinformation and propaganda, and what Jack is teaching us through this book is that this is not a new phenomenon. So, Jack, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Dan. Jack, why did you write this book? I was told you, Hewitt, who is a radio personality, when he does interviews, says you need to say the title seven times. He learned that from Frank Luntz. So I'm going to say it again. Manipulating the Masses by Jack Hamilton. So, Jack, why did you write Manipulating the Masses? I became interested in the Committee on Public Information because there never has been a definitive book written about it. People have mentioned it. It's often referred to because it was so important during the war. Nobody ever really went into and really investigated what it did, how it did it, and its impact. And I thought it would be a book that would be historically interesting. Of course, I didn't fully realize when I started eight years ago that it would be so relevant as it is today, because everything we see today with regard to government propaganda can trace its origins to the CPI, the Committee on Public Information. Why do you think, Jack, that a book hasn't been written? I did a podcast about two years, three years ago on Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who was a critical player in creating the United Nations, a critical player in creating NATO, and a critical player in the Marshall Plan. He gets almost no credit today, partially because no one ever wrote official biography of Arthur Vandenberg. There was a guy, his name is Hank Meyer, and he spent 30 years on the, a part-time endeavor writing the definitive biography of Arthur Vandenberg that came out about two years ago. And I said, why hadn't there been a biography of Arthur Vandenberg? He said, well, the first guy who tried to do it died halfway through it, an academic, and the second guy went crazy and didn't finish. So is there something like that as to why there isn't, so, is, did somebody try and do this and die? Or why was there no definitive history of this? You know, it's, that's an interesting question. I guess I'd argue by elliptically, there are so many subjects that haven't been examined in the depth they ought to have been. In the course of writing this book, I came up with half a dozen ideas for books that should definitely be written. I'll give you some examples. One of the things I uncovered in this book was the extent to which the press was so supportive of Wilson, to the point of working secretly for him, working as emissaries for him, 
working behind the scenes as well as, by the way, he had a lot of journalists in his administration. That story has never been told. And in fact, I'm thinking I may do that as a next book. There are a number of biographies that could be done out of this book. There are two great heroes in this book. One is a woman named Vera Whitehouse, who was one of the founders of public diplomacy, had been a suffragist, and had, in fact, was credited in, with good reason for having won the vote for New Yorkers, the woman's right to vote, in 1917. She went on to be a commissioner in Bern for the CPI when they decided to send people abroad, met tremendous resistance from the embassy there. And they didn't like the fact she wanted to work openly. They didn't like the fact she wanted to talk to people on the street because ambassadors didn't think and diplomats didn't think you should do that. You should only talk to people who were in high ranks of government. And she also had another problem. She was fabulously beautiful. And they just thought a woman had no business being there. And so she got so angry that she violated her orders. Her orders were, she was told to say that she left, came back to the White House, Washington, and persuaded Wilson to send letters telling them to do exactly what she wanted to do. That's one hero, fabulous woman, who went on, by the way, to start a company of her own that was very successful, a leather goods company. And another person is Arthur Bullard, a journalist we've completely forgotten. He deserves a biography. He epitomizes what public diplomacy should be about. He worked in the Soviet Union. He was very sensitive to what was happening. In fact, George Kennan said he was the best person we had in the government in Russia during the war. And another person that deserves a biography, more than those two, really, Charles Evans Hughes, a Republican who ran against Wilson in 1916. When he died, he was considered one of the three best secretaries of state. He worked for Harding in that capacity and one of the two best chief justices of the Supreme Court. The only thing he ever did his whole life that he failed at was running for president against Wilson. He should have actually won. For I can explain why he didn't. And propaganda was actually one of the reasons. But there's only been one biography of Hughes, really. And it was done by somebody who was an acolyte of his. And it was done 70 years ago. There's never been a serious biography. And he's one of our greatest Americans in the 20th century. So there's so much history that needs to be uncovered and looked at in a discriminating, in-depth way. There's no end of topics. Well, that is really interesting. Can you tell me about some of the places you went to as you did research for this book? I bet you probably went to some unusual places or some unusual archives to do the research. I did. So the Committee on Public Information does have papers. Many of the papers were lost, but there's still quite a number that went to the eventually went to the National Archives. Do you think any were purposely destroyed? No, it was by neglect. They could hardly wait to get rid of the Committee on Public Information at the end of the war. In fact, I probably should go back and say something about that for the listener to understand. So the Committee on Public Information is our first and only ministry of propaganda. It was created one week after the United States went to war by a three-sentence executive order that Woodrow Wilson wrote. It lasted 18 months. It was headed by a wild fire-eating and fire-spewing muckraker named George Creel, who was very energetic, very innovative, and had a tremendous knack for making people really unhappy with him personally because he was so abrasive. They could hardly wait to get rid of this thing at the end of the war, the, particularly the Republicans in Congress, but many other people, journalists, had had it with the CPI. So when it was gone, the papers were just ignored. People were busy, they had other things to do, and the papers went here and there, and each time they went to another building and were lost in a basement because this was before the archives were created. More papers were lost. Some of the papers, not all the papers, went to the National Archives when it was created. They were found actually some years later, just in a basement someplace that nobody even knew where they were. But in order to do the history, I came to realize that even if you had all the papers, you really couldn't tell this history. First of all, you had to understand more about the individual players of whom there were many and many colorful people. 
That was one thing. The second thing is to tell the story, you needed to tell it in a contextual way about how it related to what was really happening in the United States in a bigger way. And that meant going to another set of documents about people who were involved in the evolution of publicity as a field, for example. You had to go to journalist papers to see what they were thinking at the time. And then finally, I wanted to show, as has never been shown before, that the CPI, although it claimed that it was sui generis, and and in fact claimed it didn't do propaganda, in fact did, not only did do propaganda, but wasn't sui generis and copied from and worked closely with other propagandists overseas. And you can't really understand the CPI without understanding those connections. So I took the attitude of leave no stone unturned. If I saw a name of somebody that was interesting, I looked at the archives if I could or sent a graduate student to do it. And I also looked at archives in Great Britain and I sent an excellent graduate student I had, doctoral student, who was German and I sent her and she went to the German archives, German foreign office archives and military archives. So we were able to piece together a much more complicated, rich story by not just looking at what the CPI did on any given day, but to try to make sense of it. And I guess, as you say, you read the book, you can see that this biography of this organization is meant to be contextual, not just what happened here and what happened there. So you're saying your thesis of this book is that Woodrow Wilson led an explicit domestic disinformation campaign at home and abroad. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't use the word disinformation. Woodrow Wilson believed as a scholar of government that the United States needed a new kind of president, a president who led and led by directing the thinking of the citizens. Roosevelt did that to a large extent, but Wilson had an even bigger conceptualization of how that could be done. And of course, at this point, at the turn of the century, the executive branch had become much bigger and much more proactive. It was doing much more. So now a president didn't see himself, in this case it was men, of course, see himself just deferring to Congress, whatever Congress wanted. Presidents saw themselves as getting Congress to do the things they wanted and to lead, truly lead. And Wilson saw this idea of leading people to the right ideas as being a very important concept. Did he conduct explicit censorship of the news? Yes. So when Wilson became president, that's an important point. Wilson became president. He wanted to do propaganda, but propaganda really has two parts. One part of propaganda is the information you give to people to get them to think what you want them to think. And the other is the information you withhold from people that keeps them from thinking thoughts you don't want them to think. When we went into war, Wilson actually wanted to create legislation, it was called the censorship bill, that would be equivalent to the Defense of the Realm Act in Great Britain. That was what it was patterned after. That's never really been written much about, but that's what he was effectively trying to do. And you know, the Defense of the Realm Act allows the prime minister to say, you can't even describe what you've eaten in the 10 Downing Street in the cafeteria downstairs. I mean, it's a very restrictive document. Even Democrats wouldn't pass that, but they passed the Espionage Law, they passed the Sedition Law Act, and they passed something called the Trading with the Enemy Act. And all of those things had restrictions that could be put on what people could say, for instance, Eugene Debs argued that you shouldn't have to be drafted. We could argue against the draft. And he went to jail for that. The post office was given ability to censor mail, which meant magazines that went out could be stopped if they said something that was untoward. There was very specific instructions about what you could do with foreign language newspapers, which were a potential source of opposition to Wilson's ideas, German-American press. Right, so, so CPI had a series of foreign language specialists, because the United States has always been a nation of immigrants, there was a Ukrainian newspaper community, a Polish newspaper community, German newspaper community, uh, other European language communities. 
And each of those had kind of coverage officers, if you will, to kind of monitor this. Is that right, Jack? Well, first of all, they were able to try to control the press in those languages that was published in those languages. But they also created front organizations, which, by the way, George Creel, the head of the CPI, said they never did anything that wasn't transparent, but that's absolutely not true. And they created front organizations working with immigrant groups and with labor. And those groups looked like they were sui generis. They looked like they belonged to that it was started by the Poles or by the German Americans. But in fact, they were subsidized and run and directed by the Committee on Public Information. That was one of the many creative ideas they had for controlling what people thought. They realized those organizations could do a better job of reaching those immigrant groups if they appeared to be grassroots organizations rather than organizations run by Washington, D.C. I want to step back though and say one thing here. A great deal of what the CPI put out was factual, and some of it was very good. For example, they had a daily newspaper called The Official Bulletin, which published all kinds of documents about what the government was doing on any given day. It's the predecessor to the Federal Register and other government organs we have today that are quintessentially democratic organs because they tell us what our own government is doing. But they also did, they were tendentious, they were selective about the facts they used, in addition to, of course, squelching unwanted speech. They were coercive in the way they used information. They appealed to emotions, to hate, and they used techniques by secretly funding organizations, by secretly funding newspapers, that of course worked against the democratic ideal that you know, you shouldn't use taxpayer dollars to subvert what people think, to shape what they think in a way that is misleading. So if I say the word fake news and CPI, what's your reaction to those two words? Well, first of all, the term fake news, Donald Trump says he coined the term fake news. This is untrue. The term fake news existed even when the CPI existed. In fact, there was a book published at the time that had the term fake news in it. It was a critique of fake news. The CPI was accused of fake news, but they never used that phrase. The phrase they used was enemy talk. So in order to make the war seem immediate, because it wasn't, it was a whole ocean away, the Committee on Public Information suggested and played on the, the fears of Americans that there were German spies everywhere. Like I'm pointing to the cover of your book. This is in the theater of the mind for the podcast. And the cover of your book has a notional imagined attack by German airplanes bombing New York City and the Statue of Liberty destroyed and sort of the New York City on fire. And this is for your book, Manipulating the Masses, right, Jack? Is that the kind of things you're talking about? That on the cover, that poster was one the CPI inspired and was drawn by one of the great artists in the country who worked for the CPI at the time. And it was meant to show Germans were going to bomb us, which, of course, was preposterous. It's a wonderful poster in the picturesque sort of way it is, except it was grossly misleading. So in order to create this idea that we were under had a threat, we thought in terms of spies everywhere. In fact, there was only one person, one German, who was arrested, tried, and convicted for being a spy during the entire war. One very stupid German who wandered across the lines and had an idea of starting a revolution in California. I mean... It was crazy, crazy. But CPI had columns like German whispering and, and so forth. But what they would say is, if there was some information that was put out there, an opinion, for example, that disagreed with the administration's policy, they called it enemy talk. So anytime somebody said something that ran against what the Wilson administration argued for was guilty of enemy talk. The idea being that some spy told these people to do it, spies had spread these ideas. When you were repeating them, you were really repeating what the Germans wanted you to say. And it's very much like fake news. It's a way to fence back information you, you don't like by characterizing it in some way. 
that appears to be pejorative. Okay, and so would you say they did all this because they thought this is how they were going to win the war? Well, World War I is the first total war. You had to mobilize entire countries. You had to get people to want to be drafted. You had to conserve food. It was a massive effort by all countries, and all countries did propaganda. All countries did it. And the United States was no different. And so what you needed was, in order to mobilize people, you needed this propaganda to get people in line. There were a group of speakers that went around the country called Four Minute Men who spoke in movie theaters. And they were given a theme every week. One theme might be, buy a Liberty Bond. Another theme might be new recipes for conserving food. Donate binoculars to the Navy because they had a shortage of binoculars. So they, but, and also look out for spies. Watch out, there's spies everywhere. You better check and see who they are. So there are a whole range of things that they wanted the public to do. And the CPI would pick up these themes and press them on the American mind. Not unlike the way presidents work, right? In a campaign. This, today, our theme is going to be this. This is what we're going to hammer on. Okay, so who's George Creel? He's a very interesting guy. Creel was a muckraker, started out in Kansas City. The house of muckraking had many rooms. Some of those rooms were occupied by serious, very careful reporters. But the room that he was in was the room that was sometimes less responsible and much more incendiary. He could write with lightning speed, and uh, he was a man full of passion. He was meant to be a propagandist. He didn't have the best judgment all the time. There's a story often told that sounds incredible, but I came to believe it after I got to know Creel. During the time he was an editorial writer in Denver, he wrote some very unpleasant things about 12 so-called fallen away reform senators. And he said they should be lynched. And so there was a defamation trial afterward. That's outrageous. <laughs> it was outrageous. So anyway, afterward, there was a trial for libel. And the judge gave him a chance to retract the statement. And he said, I don't retract it. He said, the hemp, the hemp, the hemp. He wanted him lynched. That was Creel. He picked fights with the train conductor who didn't give him change fast enough. I mean, he was just a character. And uh, when he got this job, as I say, he was very energetic and very innovative. He was also chaotic. He wasn't a very good manager. And if he had been smarter and more deft, he could have handled things better because the press wanted to be compliant. But he could be very heavy-handed in dealing with the press. And this made him a huge target. And it became, in that sense, a liability. He was a bad choice for that job. The man who should have gotten the job is another character who deserves attention. That's a guy named Robert Woolley who headed the press bureau during the campaign in 1916. Very clever guy. He had been a journalist for many years and then a political operative, had jobs in various administrations. He was very clever and would have been as innovative and much more careful than Creel was. And that would have helped Wilson a lot. And the other thing it would have done, if I may just finish this point, is the moment that Creel really needed publicity was during the peace negotiations. But he had to get rid of the CPI because it was so unpopular. One of the reasons he failed to secure support for the treaty was he didn't have a proper press operation to publicize what he wanted to get done and to mold public opinion. When he finally got around to doing it, in a train trip shortly before the vote, of course, we know he became very ill and had to come back to Washington and he was incapacitated. So Woolley could have done that. Woolley would have been very, very good at that if he had been given the job. Okay, so there's a current debate in the U.S. and abroad about, I'm going to call it misinformation, disinformation, fake news. How does this book apply to what's happening today? Well, I, I give you two examples, two reasons. 
First of all, there is one whole chapter in the book, as you know, devoted to one of the more important but not well-known cases of disinformation. It was had to do with disinformation put out by white Russians in Russia in 1918, arguing that the Bolsheviks were German agents and not legitimate rulers of Russia. And these documents were given to one of the CPI's associate directors, a guy named Edgar Sisson, who embraced them wholeheartedly. And these were documents that looked like they really said, told Lenin what to do and how to organize, you know, his office and what his policies should be. And they were completely fake. CPI took these documents and rammed them down the throats of the American public to an extent that's almost incomprehensible. I did an exhaustive study of the newspapers during that week. They put these documents out. They put them out in installments in September 1918. I could only find one newspaper that ever questioned the documents. Most newspapers published them as the CPI wrote the press releases right on the front page. Anytime somebody objected, occasionally some policymaker or that one newspaper would have raised a question, Creel would say, how dare you challenge what we've said here? This has the authority of the president of the United States behind it. Does that sound kind of familiar, like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the alleged weapons of mass destruction? And the Wilson administration not only wanted to discredit the Bolsheviks because they didn't like Bolsheviks, but they also saw that the Bolsheviks had become, they believed the Bolsheviks and the Germans together were trying to undermine the United States, which led to the Red Scare. So it's a wonderful case of confirmation bias. Wilson administration wanted to believe the Bolsheviks were not legitimate. These documents showed it. And even though there were some people who said, hey, wait a minute, these documents are not legitimate. And one of them is that man I mentioned earlier, Bullard, who worked in Russia and said, you guys are crazy. Don't These documents are not legitimate. It's an object lesson in what can go wrong with this information, how you can buy into it, because it says what you want to hear. I think the lesson for today is, of course, that there's always been disinformation. It's been around a long time. It's not very novel or very insightful to point out that it's now more pernicious because it can be sped along so quickly. And uh, it can be done anonymously in ways that it couldn't before. You know, in the end, history can say the Wilson administration and the CPI are guilty of this disinformation campaign. But a lot of times we get information today and we don't even know where it comes from. We can't hold anybody specifically accountable for it. And so what it, to answer your question, where I think you wanted me to go, is it's put a lot more onus on the parts of governments to deal with disinformation and also on the public to be very skeptical about what they read. And if they agree with it, they better ask themselves, could it be wrong? So, I mean, you referenced this, there's these new forms of technology. There's lots of actors, both state and non-state actors today, operating in what we call misinformation or disinformation or fake news or propaganda. And we could list all sorts of examples of this. So what are people supposed to do? Is it about having a more educated information consumer? Is that basically the only solution to this? Well, that's one solution. And I've got another, <laughs> I've got an idea that moves us toward another solution. But it's how to implement it, I'm not exactly sure. But let me explain it this way. One thing that happens when people put out bogus information 100 years ago, like I said, when a newspaper published something that was wrong or somebody, people were publishing things that were made up all the time. When the public found out about it, then they could make the purveyors of this information accountable. They had to stand up and say, yeah, this is how I found out this information or yeah, I lied or whatever. When people are held accountable, you get to do two things. First of all, you get to more easily discredit the information. And second of all, it has a chilling effect on those who, who might do it because they don't want to be called out. 
Newspapers worked very effectively at this, or the media did, because the media would not put information out. The establishment media, for the most part, unless it was like the National Star or something, because their credibility rested on it. Because if they published some bogus information, they had to be held accountable for it. The problem with Google and other engines of disinformation, purveyors of disinformation, is they're not accountable. They just say, hey, we just put out whatever somebody gives us. I mean, they've now had done some things to roll some of this back. But I think one way we have to think about solutions is we have to hold people who have the ability to publish, however you want to conceive of that idea, define it, have to be accountable for what they publish. And that may cut down on the amount of information that gets out there, may mean that some information that was good should get out there but didn't. But it also means we can cut back on a lot of the information that shouldn't be out there that is hugely destructive and today is very destructive to our political system. You know, I'll give you an example, a family example. I had a wonderful grandfather, a Swedish grandfather in Minnesota, prosperous guy. When I was a little boy, he'd tell me how the Roosevelts would sit around and laugh about how they tricked Americans. He was a very strong Republican. I loved my grandfather. He was a great guy. And he would talk to his friends in this little town in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, the bankers and the lawyers. And they told each other these stories all the time. But they never ended up in the Detroit Lake Tribune or the Minneapolis Tribune or the New York Times because they were not true and nobody could verify them. Well, today, anybody can say anything and it ends up and they can publish it because there's nobody to stop them. And we have to find some ways, I think, to moderate the system. And although I'm a big believer in the First Amendment, somewhere along the line, we have to have accountability. Okay. So at one point also, Jack, at one point you told me that there was, maybe this was in the Middle Ages, like there was some process by which people kind of got like branded, like this is a trustworthy source or this is a not trustworthy source. Do you know? Do you, well, I think what I may have been referring to was that today when we think about disinformation, we see it supercharged by technology. And it's true that technology has made it more pernicious. But the other part of this that I think we have to understand is there's a natural condition in man and women to put out bogus information. The, the, I caught a fish. The fish was this big as opposed to this big, right? That <laughs> yeah, kind of a thing. <laughs> so the way to think about this, I think, is that when the Enlightenment comes along, when the first newspaper appears in Great Britain in 1625, I think is generally the date that's put, as soon as these things happen, the people who are involved in the Enlightenment, who enjoy the ability to try to find out knowledge and find out the truth, also become deeply concerned with all the pollution that makes its way into the information stream. So the same, almost the exact same year that that first weekly newspaper was put out in England, Ben Johnson wrote a play, and the play was called The Staple of the News, and it was about how newspapers fake information. So this is an old problem. It's just on steroids now. That's the difference. It's at least a 400-year-old problem. Yeah, it's a problem of the Enlightenment. That's a paradox, but that's what it is. All right. Well, Jack, I love the book, Manipulating the Masses. I bought it retail. I encourage everybody to go out and buy Jack Hamilton's book, Manipulating the Masses, Woodrow Wilson and the Birth of American Propaganda. If you are concerned about today's problem of misinformation and disinformation or fake news, you'll get a sense of sort of the origins of it, you know, the American phenomenon of this. And I think it's a very interesting way to put some of the challenges we face today in context. Jack, thanks for doing this. Great to see you on the screen. It's been too long and I hope to see you in Washington sometime soon. You will. Thanks, Dan. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Jack. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. 
from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 